Would you guys turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2? We're continuing through Ephesians. Today we find ourselves in chapter 2. It's really good to see you guys this morning. Thank you. The theme of what we're going to talk about today is uh, grace, a new way to be human. And I think that for you and I, more than just looking at Scripture today or more than just coming together, I think the reality of what God wants to do is He wants to radically change our hearts and from the inside out begin to do a work within our body, within our community, within our, our church corporately together. And um, this text really lends itself to that because the big idea here for you and I is that this passage, if we grasp the the principle here, has the power to transform our lives. When I first became a Christian for the first few years, um, I really had this sense of uh, the burden was upon me. Jesus has saved me. The good news is that Jesus died on the cross for me, and that opened the door for me now to really perform well and try to keep this thing going and try to earn and accept the favor of God and get all that God has for me. Not failing, failing to see that, one, that's a very self-centered approach to this faith that God has placed us into a community of people for the benefit of one another. And two, that the gospel not only saves you, it also changes you. That we're not only saved by the good news of what Christ has done for us, we're also sanctified, changed, By our justification, this same good news. So we never graduate to deeper principles about what God has done or who he is. It's the same depth of principle. The gospel is what transforms us. And that's what Paul gives us here in verses 1 through 7, Ephesians chapter 2. He starts by saying, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, or because of your transgressions and sins... One translation says, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. You followed the course of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even when we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by grace that you have been saved, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for your word this morning and we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would speak to our hearts, God, as we gather here together in Santa Barbara, as we welcome our family in Ventura and Carpinteria Father, we pray as a body and part of your larger body called the church that meets all throughout the coastlands and beyond into the world, we pray that you would do a work in our 
in our lives, in our families, and in our communities, Lord. And we pray this for Jesus' glory. Amen. Um, Paul begins by using, it doesn't say so in your translation if you have a New Living Translation, but if you have an ESV version or uh, NIV, it starts with the word and. And you were dead because of your trespasses and sins. That's how we know that God is wanting to show us something that could radically transform and bring power into our lives corporately as a body. Why? Because in Paul's prayer back in chapter 1, Paul has been talking to the church about the prayer that he's had for them. And the prayer that Paul has for them is that they would understand that Jesus has risen from the grave and the same power that rose him is now at work in their midst to work in and transform them. And then he says, and you were dead too. Now, the big idea here is that God offers to you and I a new way to be human, a whole new way of living. But in order for us to understand that new way of living or how to really live, how to really experience life to its fullest, is what Pastor Paul is praying for his people. To understand that, we have to consider a few things. Number one, we have to consider the human condition. Two, we have to consider the cause for that condition. And three, we'll look at, okay, what's the cure for that condition? So first, considering the human condition. And it's obvious when he says, you were dead because of your disobedience and many sins, that the problem, according to the Christian faith, with the world and in humanity is sin. It's not hard to understand that when we look around us, all throughout the world we see the effects of something that's not right. Something's not quite right or not quite the way it was meant to be. And Paul says it was because of sin that you were dead. Last night I spent some time with a friend who's a former CHP officer and he told me of the probably 150 or more um, fatality accidents that he had seen and witnessed. Um, Babies dying in his arms while a mother is crying out to him saying, save my baby. And then the baby dies and then the mother dies. Um, Recently, He's no longer a CHP officer. He came across a a, a body lying in the road. I mean, this person had committed suicide, jumped off a bridge somewhere in Southern California. And it's not, (laughs) all of us would say, that's for sure not right. But what he said was, there's two things that, that I always wrestled with every time I dealt with a fatality. Somebody looking me in the eyes, about to die and saying, I don't want to die. One of those hard truths that I dealt with was the fragility of life. The reality that life is so fragile. That you don't expect everything to be done in one moment. You think that you'll be strong forever and then in one accident, the crunching of one vehicle, 
it's all over. And that life is so fragile and the body is so fragile when you see it in its horrible state. He said the other thing that I realized was that death never seemed right to me. It just didn't seem right. It didn't sit right. I just wrestled with this fact that life is fragile and death doesn't feel right. Every time I looked into the eyes of a person that was dying. And what Paul says here is that you were dead because of sin. Now, there's a problem when we use the word sin for a couple of reasons. One is because there tends to be in the mind of the moralist or the religious person this idea that we split the world into two categories. Bad people or sinners and good people. And typically, moralists, and a lot of us fall into that category at one time or another, religious people tend to put themselves in that category of good people. Paul says, you all were dead in trespasses and sins, that everyone is separated by God, irregardless of their moral or immoral behavior, that there's no one particular behavior pattern or one particular sin that separated you from God. Everyone is separated from God, irregardless of what you've ever done, good or bad. Any good deed you've ever done to cover it up, everyone is separated from God. That's the nature of the human condition. And we see this in Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent comes to Adam and God tells Adam, Adam, you can take of every tree in this garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you cannot partake. Adam thinks to really live is to try something that's outside of the boundaries of God. God must be withholding something good from me. And Satan comes to him, the serpent of old, we're told in Revelation, comes to him and hisses to him, did God really say that? Is that really what God meant? Are you sure God really loves you? Do you think God's withholding something from you? And Adam thinks, something's holding me back from really living. And he takes of something that God told him, you're an image bearer of mine. And if you partake of this, you're marring that image, Adam. You were created for something else, a relationship with me. Adam takes of it, and as a result, death enters the world. In Romans, it says that through one man, sin entered the world for everybody. He then becomes the federal head, like a father is the head of the the family. Particularly in Eastern culture, the father would be the representative of the entire family, just like a general would represent an army. Or a nation. Adam represented humanity. He was the best that man had to offer at that point. And Adam sins as a a result. Death enters the world to all men. Sin spreads to all of us. And as a result, all of us are in this condition. This fallen condition. The biblical doctrine of sin should lead us away from self-superiority, self-righteousness. Because it causes us to remove this lens that all people are divided into the category of bad people or good people. And says instead all people are in this category of sinful humanity. That's the condition. In fact we're all unbelievers. The only difference is that there are repentant and unrepentant non-believers. 
we tend to not believe the gospel and the truth of the gospel. And as a result, either we're repentant or unrepentant. Now, it's not only that the danger is for moralists. The danger is also for the modern mindset as well. Because for the modern mindset, the tendency is to see sin or the doctrine of human sin as repressive, um, a pessimistic view of humanity. And it couldn't be anything more different than that. In fact, the doctrine of sin shows us that there is a problem and indeed there's a possible solution and a cure to everything that's wrong, the injustices in our world. All of the, all of the ways that you've been sinned against, all of the uh, depression, mental illness, depravity, deformity, all of that, there's a cure for it. Racism, it's all a result of this human fallen condition. However, um, there are those that would say, well, the human doctrine of sin, it's repressive. I, I can't believe in that. But as C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, the moment that you say that one set of moral ideas can be better than another, you're measuring them both by a standard, saying that one of them conforms to that standard more neatly than the others. But the standard that measures two things is something different from the other, from either. You are, in fact, comparing both of them with some real morality. In other words, you're saying, my doctrine is the doctrine that's real morality. I can't get with the doctrine of sin. You should get with my doctrine of non-sin, non-depravity. In other words, you're admitting that there is such a thing as right and wrong, independent of what people think, and that some people's ideas get nearer to the real right, your right, than others. There was an author by the name of Ernest Becker. He's a cultural anthropologist, and he wrote a couple of books on, the, on evil. And one of those books was called The Structure of Evil. And in this first book, he essentially says that the problem with humanity, the problem with the world in general, why poverty exists and war exists, is because the privileged are always oppressing the poor, the weak. And it's through suppressive social structures is that the, the problems with war and poverty continue. And so in his idea, the answer to it was better schooling, um, better social structures, better government. And then towards the end of his life, he wrote another book. And this book was called The Escape from Evil. And he said this, my previous writings did not take sufficient account of the truly vicious human behavior that's in the world. This is a dilemma that I've been caught in along with many others who have been trying to keep alive the enlightenment tradition of a science of man. We'll move on from that. Essentially what he is saying is, my whole life I thought that social science coupled with bureaucracy or government or better schools or better systems or better education or a better uh, legal system could change humanity and society, but he failed to take into account the vicious nature of humanity, how people treat one another. Nobody ever ends their life and says, you know, when I first started out in life, I thought people were really, really vicious and evil, but towards the end of my life, I realized everybody's amazing. 
Nobody says that. It's always the other way around. And the more that you live, the longer that you live, like my friend, the CHP officer, the longer you realize life is fragile and things weren't meant to be the way that they are. And why do I respond so frantically at times? Why do I respond so crazy? I'm supposed to be made alive. And Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Just like my friend who looked in the eye of the individual and said, that person's not, that's, this is not supposed to be that way. In the same way, he says, you were dead in trespasses and in sins. And what we don't often realize is the death that enters into humanity when Adam died and sin spreads to all men. We tend to think of sin in terms of the things that I do wrong, the things that I do bad. We don't often think of the far-reaching effects that sin has the relational death that comes between a husband and a wife as a result of of being self-absorbed. Genesis, it reads that in verse 7 and 12. The personal death that comes to Adam, eventually resulting in physical death. This man who is supposed to live and be a reflected uh, uh, image bearer of God, he ends up dying just like death will come to all of us. Life is fragile and it's not meant to be that way. But also the sociological death. I was saddened this morning to read of a situation that happened in athletics and sports. And as a result, there was a flurry of people with racist comments. And as a result of sin entering the world, that's the reason for racism, classism, poverty issues, mental illness, relational disruption and what Paul says in Romans is that the wages of sin is death that the what happens as a result of sin entering the world ultimately is death and that all of humanity just like Adam is on a search to attempt to cover up this depravity the sinfulness transgression now the horrific effects of those sins are, he says, you used to live like the rest of the world, obeying the commander of the spirit of the unseen world. Another translation says you were children or sons of disobedience following the leadership of Satan. He also says you were children of wrath. And the Bible teaches that there's coming a time when God pours out his wrath or he actually has judgment. He keeps judgment. See, the modern mindset says, I don't want, how can God be a, how can God judge people? That's so myopic. But think about it. As sons or daughters, you want your dad to be like the strong guy, to actually stand up for wrong, to actually stand up against the face of injustice. The problem is that oftentimes we don't want God to stand up against the injustices that we ourselves create. And Paul says, the condition of humanity is that one time you were dead in trespasses and sins and you were sons and daughters of disobedience and actually children of wrath, enemies of God. That's the human condition. Now, it gets even a little bit deeper. So what's the cure for that? I understand we're all children of wrath. What's the cure for that? Or what's the cause? I'm sorry. 
What causes all of that? Now this is where we tend to see the, the doctrine of sin as something smaller than what it really is. What, when I ask you, what is sin? What would your response typically be? Not breaking the rules. Disobeying God. All of those sorts of things. But the Bible teaches that sin is actually something more complex, more nuanced than we even understand. That sin at its basic element, basic definition is replacing God with something else that I think will really give me life, a new humanity, just like Adam. In this case, Paul uses a couple words. He says, you were dead because of your disobedience and sins. One translation says transgression. That's the real word, transgression and sin. By him using both of those words, it removes both a sense of self-righteousness, that I can do good things, or, or I, there's, there's things, my behavior, what I do for God can actually make up for it. By him using the word sin, he's actually saying, you've missed the mark of God's standard. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And by him using the word transgression, it removes any sense of self-pity or victim mentality. When he says transgression, that word means crossing a line that we should never have crossed. Willfully disobeying God's, uh, what he created you and me for. The image that we were to bear for him. You were dead in transgressions and sins. Okay, so I get that it's replacing God. And, he says, following the commander of the powers of the unseen world. This past week I was listening to, Nina and I were listening to C.S. Lewis' uh, screw tape letters on, on audio. And um, the way that C.S. Lewis writes, to me, is genius. Because he is writing as a demon to another demon. And he says it was actually one of his, it was his hardest work to write because he had to flip all of the words and actually talk about his master in the form of Satan and everything that was flipped around him. And he said, one of the, one of the uh, chapters talks about this man who becomes a Christian and he says, I'm sorry that you have allowed this man to become a Christian. That's okay, well, there's still opportunity. We can still get him. Here's what we'll do. We'll cause him to believe that this Christian life is all about his inward self. All about who he is and trying to maintain some, some self-form of righteousness so that when he actually sees his mom and the way that she, it actually talks about the way that like she eats cereal and things like that. When he sees his mom, which is the grossest thing in humanity to watch somebody else eat cereal. But he says, when he sees his mom or he sees her dealing with certain sins and he's just praying for her spirit self, he's not attempting to love her for who she is in the physical realm. In other words, he's attempting to make this faith faith all about him. Do you know what the cause of sin here is? Of course, sin originated in the garden as Satan, who's a fallen angel, fallen created angel, comes and tempts Adam. Satan is still alive in this world, working and actively functioning. Demonic powers are still at work. Some of you, there's... Some of you in this room, maybe after today, you come up for prayer because you feel, I'm being tormented by demons. And that's a real entity and a real power that's at work. There's a movie, Usual Suspects, old movie, where he says, one of the lines in the movie is, one of the 
greatest lines ever. He says, the greatest lie that the devil ever told was making the world believe that he didn't exist. He says, you used to obey the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey, obey God or the sons of disobedience. But then he says something deeper. He says, and the way that this continues, the power of it is verse three. All of us used to live that way. Look at this. Following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. That word, passionate desires, is really the cause, what continues that condition, both for repentant sinner and unrepentant sinner. Because the word passionate desire is translated, do you know what it is? Lust. Now, when I say the word lust, you immediately think, oh, bad, lust, sexual deviation, pervert. It's really not dealing with sexual deviation at all. The word lust is actually used in good ways in the New Testament. See, the word passionate desires, you followed your passionate desires, is not saying you want bad things. That's the problem with you. It's saying that you want good things, but you want them too badly. And you want them so badly that it's now, the word is, Epithumia, an epi-desire, an over-desire. It's something that you want so badly that you say, if I have that, then life will be blank. You fill in the blank. If only I had, if only this was in this way, life would be this. And he says what continues it is this over-desire for actually good things. In every place where the Bible talks about um, sin or the nature of sin or supernatural change, the word epithumia is mentioned in the Bible. When it says, put away your sinful desires, epithumia. It's talking about idolatry. You know, the, the first command that was given in Exodus chapter 20 is what? You shall have no other gods before me. See, the whole sole reason why we find ourselves in behavior or our own sinfulness is because there's things that we've placed in front of God and said, God, yeah, I, you're good and I want to serve you and I want to serve you ultimately to get to this. This gives me a reason, a purpose for living. And we can throw all sorts of things in that place. And the problem with our heart is not an ordinary desire for bad things, typically. The problem with your heart and mine is an over-desire for good things. You see, God created things for us, to be enjo for us to enjoy them. And what Paul says is, you used to follow every passionate desire in front of you. Ernest Becker, that same author, also won a Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Denial of Death. And in that book, um, Tim Keller mentions this in The Reason for God. He says, all of us are living for something that we would call our um, cosmic significance. And the deep desire within every child 
that he, you know, studied in his sociology experiment was that every child had a deep desire for something of value or to be seen as something as worthy. And so every child, they pursue that. He says, our need for worth, it's up on the screen, is so powerful that whatever we base our identity and value on, we essentially deify. We make it into God. We will look to it with all the passion and intensity of worship and devotion, even if we think ourselves as highly irreligious. It says, no matter if you think you're irreligious or religious, it doesn't matter. There's something that you think will make life worth living. It will give you a real humanity, something worth living and dying for. And he says, that's what you essentially deify. But guess what? We do that in a lot of forms of life. He says, the self-glorification that modern man needed in his innermost nature, he now looked for in the love partner. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. Spiritual and moral needs now become focused on one individual. So he says, some look to a spouse to fulfill all their deepest needs and desire. And that when there's a breakup... I can't continue. I can't move on because this person was actually the thing that I found worth and value in. He's not saying that everyone looks to romantic love. Some of us look to um, career, education, parental approval, the success of our children. That can be very difficult. I'm a dad of three kids now and I never thought certain emotions that that are there that... that I would feel this deep desire that my kids would be right and good and and almost to the point of overprotection so that the removal of that or their endangerment causes me, I can't function, I can't think, I'm panicked, I can't move on. Somebody in here might say, I'm not basing my life on anyone. I won't base my self-worth or value on anybody. But you've made... um, independence now the deity that you serve and anything that seeks to remove your independence now you focus your hatred (laughs) intense bitterness upon Um, there's a couple ways that we can find out what these idols are what these over desires are let me give them to you number one is to ask yourself what thing that if I lost it I would not want to live any longer That if I never got this, that if I lost that, I wouldn't want to live anymore. And now, it's not discounting the fact that we live in a fallen, broken world. Things aren't as they are supposed to be. And as a result, there's chemical, we face problems with chemical imbalances. And the idea of clinical and chemical depression is a very real thing that people face. However, for the majority... And the most of the time, the thing that we say, that removed my peace, that removed my joy, that situation is what caused me to respond in that way, is oftentimes an indicator of something that I've placed an overvalue on. The second way that we can find that out is by asking the question, what are the emotions that at times in my life are uncontrollable? The negative emotions, 
Those feelings of deep jealousy, of deep bitterness, of envy, covetousness. Why do I experience those? A lot of times, it's an over-desire. Of course, it's not a sin to be angry. Jesus got angry. It's not a sin to grieve. It's good to grieve. Jesus grieved. But in times where those, that peace or joy that Jesus has des- described as, uh, as giving us life or, or a part of our life is removed, we look at it and we say, I've made this thing too important. An over-desire possibly have deified it. And do, here's the thing. Nothing in your life can bear the burden of God but God. To find life, you must embrace a love that's stronger than death. To find real life, you've got to embrace a love that's stronger than death. The death that you had experienced in the human condition or the death, the thing that causes death on a continual level, the thing that you say, like Adam, I think this will give me life and it instead brings death. And that's the reality that all we face, that everything in my life, all of my problems are a direct result of locating life in something else. Do you struggle with worry? Are you dealing with anxiety, fear, self-pity, self-control? All of that is a direct result of failing to see my life in Christ and instead I'm locating life in something else. It's my life, my emotions, my passions are dislocated. And as a result, if a good thing in my life is blocked, I get angry. That happens. But if it's an over-desire, I become vengeful, bitter, blow up anger. If a good thing in my life is removed, I become sad, I grieve, and that's normal and that's good. But if it's an over-desire, I become debilitated, can't move, can't continue. Now, I read a book um, this past week called Instrument in, the, in a Redeemer's Hands. It's a counseling book. And he uses a case study by a, gal, by a gal named Celia. And Celia comes into his office and he says, for some of us, your deep neediness reveals much more about who you are than what you're missing. For you, the situation that's come into your life and you say, I would be this way if this person wasn't there, if this situation hadn't happened, if certain things in my life aren't happening the way that they are, but the reality is those things show what's really inside. He says, Celia's sense of need revealed the lust of her heart more than it revealed the betrayal of others. And what she actually needed was the one thing she never craved, God. If you really want to understand what's important to a person, find out where he or she feels needy. Values become desires. Desires become demands. And demands get expressed in counseling as needs. This woman, Celia, he goes on to say, she always had a sense that everybody was rejecting her. Nobody was giving her what she needed, but she didn't realize that she was blind to the fact that when she walked into a room, she was looking for what everybody else could give to her. And as a result, she became a people pleaser and desperately bitter at everybody who failed her standard. 
And as a result, what we have to realize is that when we worry, we're actually finding our life in something other than God himself. When we're feeling condemned, there's something in my life that's more powerful than God's magnificent grace to forgive that sin. When I'm feeling sorry for myself, there's something that I feel that I should have had that would have gave me a deeper sense of value or worth than God himself. Now, what's the cure for all of this? I said, to find life, you must embrace a love that's stronger than death. And the cure, the antidote, is in something deeper than that. A life, a love that's stronger than death. Paul gives that to us in verse 4. He says, but God. Those are the two words that if you take nothing else this week, you remember two words. You were dead in trespasses and sins and all of your failure and all of your bad motives and all of your self-absorption. But God. That's the good news of the gospel in two words. Who is so rich in mercy because of the great love that which he loved us or he loved us so much that even though, even when we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by grace that you've been saved. He raised Christ from the dead along, or he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we're united with Jesus Christ. Why Jesus? I get the idea that maybe I've mislocated my, my passions, that I've looked for something else to live for. So why Jesus though? Isn't that a narrow way? Now, the Christian faith looks at all of humanity and says, it doesn't negate the fact that people do good. That in fact, there are people that are not Christians that probably will live a more moral life than I will. Because we're all created in the image of God. But here's the, new, here's the good news. But God shows us that Jesus Christ doesn't just come to earth like other religious teachers and say, here's things that you should abide by to help you to really live. He says, I'm going to come and die for you so that you can really live. Jesus comes to this earth and lives life. He faces the devil, temptation in the wilderness three times victoriously. Whereas we have been not victorious, whereas we've given in. Jesus Christ comes to this earth, he puts on human flesh, he becomes a baby, and he lives a life with brothers and roommates and friends in a sinless way, whereas we've given in to sin. And because of his life, he now becomes the antidote, C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis calls him the good infection. Just like a fire, it's burning, it's beautiful, but until you get close to it, to have it actually warm you and infect you, or next to somebody who says, I'm going to take the disease for you. You know all those movies like Contagion and Outbreak. I hate those movies. I'm a, I'm a, I'm hypochondriac anyway. So when I watch movies like that, that's worse than Freddy, whatever movie you might think of. You watch a movie like Contagion where the hero comes in and he says, 
I'm going to touch the wounded. I'll touch the victim. And he actually is infected with the disease himself so that he can come up with the antidote and give the people the dose that will cause them to live. Why, Jesus? Because he doesn't tell you the way. He is the way. And it's only that when you see that your desire is to become your own savior, your own self-salvation, your own redeemer, that lying beneath both your sins and your moral goodness is the sense of wanting to save myself, cover myself, Mr. Hyde. That's the essence of that, of that book. That Mr. Hyde is actually hiding from other people and he becomes the monster at the end as he's trying to do good deeds and get rid of his old self. And that you realize that Jesus Christ has taken your place. Now you're on the verge of understanding the gospel. Now you're on the verge of true transformation. Now you're not trying to say, I want more of you. You say, you gave me all of you already. Everything you've got, you gave it to me. You poured it out into a human life. You lived it to the fullest. And in the garden, you sweat for me drops of blood and on the cross you bled for me and then you said it's finished father forgive them so that you could give life to me and when you realize that that antidote to being bad is not just being good you're on the brink of true salvation you're on the brink of really understanding this thing called good news the gospel and you understand why you can relate to God to others to your spouse, to your neighbor, to people of other cultures in a different and new way. It's a new humanity. It's called a new birth. <laughs> it's called new birth because it's so radical. Born again to live anew. And he uses these words, because God is so rich in mercy and the love that he loved you with. Friends, in order to find life, you've got to embrace a love that's stronger than your death. A love that actually faced death and says, for the joy set before me, I'll endure that cross. You're the joy that was set before him. And when you begin to understand that, it begins to change you. It begins to help you to not be so um, self-righteous. Look at other people and say, why do you have to be that way? Jesus Christ became a son. The son of God became a man so that you could become sons and daughters of God. And here's the reality of it. When he says, you were once enemies of God, children of wrath, get this. Jesus Christ on the cross became Switch places with you. He became a child of wrath so that you could become a beloved son, a beloved daughter of the Most High God. That will begin to change you. That will begin to melt you. And when you begin to see, as one pastor says, that, the, that you are more sinful than you ever understood, but you are more loved than you ever dared hope, at the very same time, all of your wickedness and all of your depravity, God loves you. Even when we were dead, God came and loved us. 
even in all of your brokenness right now, Jesus is here again to love you. Even in all of your filthy motives, Jesus is here to love you. But God, who is so rich in mercy, remember that super deep film Toy Story? These toys have their value ultimately in their owner. But this Yahoo named Buzz Lightyear comes and he actually believe, believes that he is a space ranger sent to this earth to fight the evil Emperor Zerg. And he finds his whole identity in the fact that he is the hero to fight this <laughs> evil, wicked tyrant. And you know, he actually uses his little thing and what he yells out, he's like, you are a toy, a child's play thing. <laughs> and what does Buzz say? You are a sad little man. <laughs> and it's at his time of extreme brokenness, actually, and isolation, that he comes across the TV and he sees a commercial advertising all of the Buzz Lightyears in the world. And he looks at his, his little Buzz Lightyear light and he realizes they're advertising my light. And these wings that I thought would fly, they're just made by Mattel. And what he realizes is that he's completely, he's completely undone by the fact that He's not the space ranger, which he's found identity in his whole time. And Woody comes to him and he says, he says to Woody, I'm not a space ranger. I'm just a toy, a stupid, insignificant toy. And Woody comes to him and he says, being a toy is a whole lot better than being a space ranger. Look, over in that house is a kid who thinks that you're the greatest. You're his toy. And at that moment, Buzz picks up his shoe and he looks at the bottom of his shoe and it says Andy and he realizes I belong to someone this someone purchased me this is who I belong to what's really fascinating to me is I've been reading this past week uh, C.S. Lewis Mere Christianity blowing my mind and there's a chapter called Obstinate Toy Soldiers and he says the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. And then he asked this question. Imagine what it would be like to turn the toys that you had into living creatures. You ever thought that? My daughter does it all the time. She sets up her little dolls. They talk to each other. Now imagine if you could actually make them come alive. What would happen? Well, this toy would probably look at you and say, you're removing all of my tin. I can't believe you. He would fight at every moment because I can't believe you're putting flesh on me. What is this? You're changing me. You're doing something to me. And what C.S. Lewis says is, in order to make obstinate toy soldiers come to life, Jesus Christ himself came to this earth and became a toy soldier. Jesus Christ says, look on the bottom of your shoe. You belong to me. Because of the great love with which he loved us, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And he uses the word grace, which is the picture that we have up of the gift. It's a gift. And when you begin to realize that this thing called the Christian faith or salvation 
has nothing to do with you. You simply accept and enjoy Jesus and follow him. And in all of your depravity and all of your brokenness, he comes to you and like C.S. Lewis says, it's the fact that Christ is there in your bedroom while you're praying, doing things, changing you, listening to you. Lord, thank you that you are alive and you give us life. Thank you for your grace, Lord. And as we worship you, we realize you've given us everything of yourself. There's no more of you to be given. We want to think deeper on that. We want to come into a new realization that this good news is actually what changes us. Dwelling deeply on the good news of what Christ does for us. Thank you, Jesus. Meet us here now. As we worship, we have communion elements on both sides, which is a symbol of Jesus' body and his blood shed for you and broken for you. And you come and you take that and you rejoice in Christ and you also repent of those things that you've made too important. Those things that you said, my life is wrapped up in this. There's prayer teams on both sides who would love to pray with you. Let's rejoice in Jesus now.